Hey everybody, how are you doing? Uh, it's Weakness for Bleakness, your weekly dose of weakness and bleakness. My name is Kieran Stevenson, with me as always, Darcy Moran. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Kieran. How are you doing? I'm doing alright. I'm a little bit on the warpath. Everything is bumming me out at the moment, which is good news for the podcast. It's good news for the podcast. It's not very good news for me. Mm. As I'm sitting adjacent to you. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, it's reached a level where it's so abstracted and just omnidirectional at the moment that no one target is at any real risk. Like, for example, carpets are fucking disgusting when you think about it. Looking you around have, the room, I must say I, I quite mean, agree this with carpet, you. This carpet specifically is extra disgusting, but carpets as a concept. It's a big piece of material which you put on the floor, which can never be washed, and it just gradually gets dirtier over its entire lifetime. For a, a trenchant c- metaphor yeah. for late capitalism. For a city in such a temperate climate zone, Melbourne mm. does have far too many carpets. Yes. You do not need them in the 21st century, especially not if you live somewhere warm. Yes, how very true. So, with our metaphor of floorboards as socialism, let us begin... A modest house, a picket fence, a couple kids, some common sense, a job to pay your mortgage or your rent. And all these goals are understood, but misery is a public good, so come and feed your sorrows till you're spent. Well, just to come, the captain said, the icebergs only dead ahead, the men will keep the engines fed, I have a deal with God. We're at the end of history, there ain't a hope for you or me, when workers philanthropically believe in the economy, but what a feast for tired eyes, the poison earth, the boiling skies, and everyone that ain't have spies, remember when the world was wise, we know, no, 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 no. Darcy, would you like to hit us with a headline? Headline number one. Media outlets responsible for... Racializing Melbourne's African gang problem. Yay. This is from uh, the ABC. It's John Buderick writing for The Conversation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, the article is pretty simple, pretty to the point. The media are pretending that we have a racialized gang problem. Yes, When they- we don't. Yes, they are. And it's kind of weird that nothing can be done about that. Yeah, except, I guess, for this... They're basically yelling Jew in a crowded theatre, and... Yeah. It's completely fine. I thought we made that illegal in 1947 or whatever. Right. Never again, unless Mm. it's the Africans this time. Yeah, basically. They're... I mean, this is the thing. This is the proud Australian tradition of, like, at the very start of settlement, uh, it was the Irish who were disproportionately fucking... Uh, imprisoned in the prison camps and stuff, and then it was the Italians and the Greeks and I the Vietnamesees. Yeah, the Vietnamesees with all of their heroin. We had the and 90- all their food that they had. Yep, yep. We had all the nineties Asian scare, and then the Lebanese, and then Middle Eastern, which was also a gang thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was such a stretch to get these like kind of sixteen to twenty-one year olds, essentially rave culture, <laughs> harmless effete middle-class kids yeah. <laughs> look at that dangerous gang <laughs> staggering home on sunday morning yeah oh they got lost and spent a while f- coming down off their delicious ecstasy tablets <laughs> chewing vaguely at nothing oh i'm frightened yeah that was the vibe and now <laughs> it's the africans now it's the africans well the the argument with the africans 
as it was with the Vietnamese and as it always is with minority cultures, is mm. that they're overrepresented in the crime statistics. Yeah. They're massively overrepresented in media reporting. Yeah. Because if an African teenager gets drunk and shouts at someone, it's a gang incident. Yeah. Um, and the whole country has to get told about it. But they're overrepresented in crime statistics for a very simple reason. If the police get a tip off that a crime has occurred mm. and the description of the suspect is eh, like 19 to maybe mid 20s, six foot Caucasian male in a Russell yep. Athletics grey sweater. Oh, one of our they boys. They basically don't bother looking because that's yeah. what, 50,000 suspects or something? Yeah. Whereas if you get told, oh, you know, short for, a, for an African. Mm probably in his mid-30s, <laughs> Mickey Mouse backpack on. Well, in the local area, there are maybe half a dozen suspects. Yeah. The odds of an arrest getting made are much higher with a minority because witness statements are much more useful to the police. I mean, that in itself is a very generous uh, interpretation of police behaviour, which I'm willing to entertain, but there's also the idea that... Well, there's like, the fact that a the bunch of police bias it themselves. Well. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, 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 but just saying, <clears throat> it's if you remove any kind of prejudice and just look at the fact that a witness statement is a physical description yeah. much easier for the police to find somebody if they've got a less typical physical appearance yeah sure and therefore that 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 group will always be overrepresented in arrest statistics yeah because Plus- crime statistics only cover mm. success successful prosecutions mm. you know it's not like every crime that happens magically ends up on the statistical database. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Plus a bunch of other socioeconomic factors, which we've talked about before, if you analyse the spread of uh, white Australians across class uh, categories, then you'll find a much more sort of yeah, even spread than... Absolutely. I'm sure that Africans are also massively overrepresented in poor brackets of our... They are. That's That's pretty normal society. for recent <clears throat> arrivals, mm. as it were. But I feel like it's going to be more marked in this case because mm. there's a really strong pre-existing anti-black sentiment, frankly. Yeah. Compared yeah. to other, like, you know, Greeks and Italians were not mm. particularly feared or despised until they turned up, whereas it feels kind of like we were waiting for the blacks. To yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was a really White person, creepy... black person is like the classic coke of racism. Like, we Australians have been gagging for an opportunity to be racist against genuine black people. So this is like fucking field day for the xenophobic, uh, pearl-clutching, terrified white morons in the suburbs. Oh, God, yeah. And, you know... We've got the slightly more disturbing uh, danger that if the press leads the public conversation Mm. and alienate the African community, who are now, and it's discussed in this article, they are now more afraid of suffering physical violence as a result of this reporting. Yep. They do feel singled out and unwelcome. Sure. Which they didn't two, three years ago. Mm. Um as soon as you start to ostracise and alienate people, you put them at risk, and yeah. you don't just put them at risk of suffering uh, un- un- undeserved sort of so-called retribution, mm-hmm. but you put them at risk of joining a- an active, dangerous underclass because yeah. you you cut their stake out, you cut out their stake in society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you force alienation on people, then is it any surprise? 
surprise if they're going to react by being like, I'm alienated. Where can I find a home? Yeah. Oh, maybe we'll all get together, all of us black people who have been made to feel like we don't belong in society. And this is actually a point of gang psychology. If African gangs ever do emerge and become a problem, Mm. gangs are primarily defensive social structures. They're not aggressive. Most people... People don't form gangs because they want to go off and cause trouble. Yeah. They form gangs as a means of protecting themselves from a hostile surrounding. Yeah, yeah. And also there's this thing that, like, other podcasts have been talking about this a bit lately, I guess. But, like, if you look at uh, Italian guys who are super into the idea of the mafia, Mm. like, that primarily comes from, like, a social standpoint, not... A crime. They almost would rather not do the crime, but they want to be able to go and. I would rather be cool and not have to do crime. Yeah, but you get to you know you've got your yeah, restaurant yeah. that you own. You go to your strip club. You hang out with the boys. You drive around. You steal some fur coats. Whatever. Yeah, everybody so, like, wants to be the guy <clears throat> without having to do the work. Yeah, so, certainly. But yeah. particularly if the work is super traumatic, horrible mm. mafia work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we tend to think of gangs as being this like explicit like almost a criminal company but they're like primarily social and then yes the uh crime shit is how their sort of security is insured yeah well that that tends to be just dealing with unemployment basically yeah yeah but this headline is about uh media right so yeah this is about the media taking an active role in creating a social crisis that doesn't exist so thank you media and it's an example of why they fucking hate the ABC because this is the ABC reporting. This is this is mm. this is the Guardian who um, protects us from the other Guardians. Essentially, that's why you keep seeing bullshit articles attacking the ABC. Yeah. So in three and a bit years, when the Liberals are campaigning on a fucking platform of privatizing the ABC, fucking remember what's going on. Um, shall we move a pace? Move ahead a yes. pace. Absolutely. Uh, all right. My first headline is a double headline. One from Domain. My uh, favorite source of satire. Yes. Channel 9 bought Gatwick Hotel for $5 million less than reported records show. So the, uh, the Channel 9 sharks got the Gatwick Hotel, the infamous, sordid Gatwick Hotel in St. Kilda, the den of villainy, for uh, a steal. For $10 million, the entire fucking building. The other headline... Uh, Shit, I'd have thought the land was worth more than that little yeah, building. Yeah. The other one comes from Christina Kukolia and Sandy Rogalic for The Guardian. Gatwick Hotel, The Last Days of a Halfway House, an audio photo essay. And I include this headline just because I want people to go and read that article and listen to the audio clips and stuff. Because what we have... The Gatwick Hotel is a place where typically down and out people would go and stay. It was fairly affordable and you would get a lot of like sex workers and drug addicts and stuff staying there just because that was kind of the place that it was. And um, a lot of welfare institutions used it as crisis accommodation. So various like Anglicare and and so forth had um, kind of accounts as it were with the Gatwick where they, they could send clients at short notice. Yeah, so Channel 9 bought it to destroy it on their shitty renovation show, The Block, one of an inexplicable number of fucking renovation shows that we have in our national mania for the housing market as financial asset. Um, Yeah. And all of the reporting has been 
basically like, wow, look at what Channel 9's doing this time. Isn't it great? What an inspirational thing. It's so inspirational yeah. that the last refuge for Melbourne's down and out yeah. has become a fucking bourgeois toy. Yeah. And when it, whenever they, like, Fine. reference its past, it's always like, here's the creepy history of the Gatwick Hotel. The vile scum den. Den of scum and villainy. I could have done the more wretched part, I tried to pull more out. scum and villainy. Yeah. On point. Uh, <laughs> Alec Guinness there. Um, yeah, it's really frustrating because, like, I had heard about the Gatwick ages ago from people who had stayed there and I'd read about it, accounts from people who had stayed there. And obviously it's not like some fucking fantasy novel. Oh, it was a like horrible villain place. Villain's guild. So, yeah. Don't get me wrong, it was a horrible place. Of course it was, but <laughs> that's that doesn't mean that like was, the horribleness a... doesn't go away when you fucking no, buy no, it. No, God, and of course not. No, no, absolutely not. But it. this is what people think. People think mm. that, oh, good, that scary building that was ruining my nice, trendy St Kilda area. Yeah, because that's the only thing that's wrong with St Kilda. always been a tacky fucking shithole. Sorry, it just has. It's always been shit and awful. And Mm -hmm. only idiots like it. But... Also, uh, St Kilda musicians, uh, the 90s did end. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but they did end. It was a good it was a good period, but we have to grow and continue to move on as people. And I'm not talking about, like, the fun Scar 90s. I'm talking about the overly self-serious black T-shirt, black jeans, down-tempo, boring rock music shit. That's done. Move on. They, uh, they're mostly dying now, anyway, that batch of 90s <laughs> St Kilda rockers. Like, they're all on the way out. Yeah. Roland's gone. Mm. Spencer P, I think, is pretty much ready to join him. Mm-hmm. Rest of them have moved on. I already feel bad for that, for telling them. I feel like Tex Perkins is about to get arrested for something. I just, Mm. it seems like time in his career. Um, (laughs) We should (laughs) quickly abandon this. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, St Kilda, I didn't mean it. No, fuck St Kilda, it's a dump. But the Gatwick was, yeah, it was an especially seedy part of a very unpleasant suburb and a lot of Mm. people felt uncomfortable and nervous around it because it was full of people who were in some cases mad in some cases coming down off substances without proper supervision and support yeah it should have been replaced by a proper yeah um accommodation Mm. center you know it was it was literally a bet bet one rung over homelessness it was a horrible horrible venue but it was still one rung above homelessness yeah all that we've got now are fewer beds for the most vulnerable people in society. Yeah. That's so, not a victory. That's a disaster. Yeah. So when they're out on the street... I mean, it sold a while ago, so the trauma that this thing is causing has already taken place. The yeah, yeah. Closed in that sense, it's, it's not news, I suppose. But, um, whatever. but because the TV show is coming up and everybody's starting to fucking get really jazzed about it and get excited about t- these fucking gaudy luxury apartments yeah it's relevant it's relevant because we need to fucking re-examine ourselves constantly and how we treat uh vulnerable people as uh yeah disposable impediments to entertainment in this case yeah fucking gross so i guess in closing 
my point is not that I hate the music that they make in St Kilda. It's just that they they're, they're very they're very. Uh, I don't listen to it. I wouldn't know. Every time I've been there, they haven't they haven't made me feel like I was welcome there. I just it's a weird place where you go and see Kim Salmon drinking beer with a straw, and it's just a, I hate it. It's a stupid <laughs> suburb for people who think that the presence of palm trees indicates luxury. It's weird. Yeah. It really hasn't it figured out to go. its like luxury slash slum divide thing. Well, it used to. Be, it's like, always. I mean, it's been a transient suburb for most of its history because it mm. was a. It was a carriage ride before trains and mm. cars. It was a carriage ride away from Melbourne, so it was where the the elite yeah. had their little beach playhouses, and where mm. then it, it became the kind of accommodation point for foreign travellers, businessmen who needed to mm. play in Melbourne and so on. So, it, it's always been a kind of sordid scum bucket of a place yeah everyone should move out of it there are some very good bakeries though yeah that's true the jews live there now so there are some pretty good well, yeah i'm not talking about like carlisle streets bougie right. stuff i'm talking about like good bakeries anyway let's move on <laughs> speaking of channel nine ruining everything channel nine as i'm sure you will know have recently purchased fairfax yes they and have. people are having conniptions about this some people who think the age is a progressive um, mm. publication are really worried mm. other people have a slightly more sensible i'm generally concerned about media concentration attitude yep it's about three or four decades too late for that mm. but uh Kest Lavi, as the French say. Yeah. What do you feel about this, Kieran? I'm, I'm concerned about media concentration. I know that it's been happening for a long time. I like, because I know that you're very, uh, well, who gives a shit because it's all fucked already uh, <laughs> about this thing, which is cool. You know, that's... A, this seems a- like a weird moment for people. I can't help but feel there's a level of snobbery involved here because Fairfax was seen as a liberal ornament. Yeah. Um, it's a, a bit like if... Club X purchased the Regent Theatre. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Our listeners already know your history with The Age and how it was very much an ornament for you when you were younger and that you've already gone through this trauma and relinquished it or whatever. Not that it's a trauma to me, but it is just every thing, every individual thing, no matter how fucking pointlessly moderate it has become uh, that falls under the umbrella of these giant companies is just another step to the to the transitional period of horror and civil unrest that will eventually lead us to a glorious socialist utopia. So in that sense, acceleration is a parade. It's fun to live in the transitional form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it just, it means that now we've got basically the ABC and then everything else. Well, there's the ABC. There's also the SBS. Um, yeah, that's true. So that's actually. that's now it's so it's lost Lee Lin Chin. Yeah, however, a few days Enos ago. has returned from his cancer scare. So Yay. it's kind of Welcome you know back, something of a balance. We like yeah. Enos. He's S- a good, dignified good. fellow, despite his surname sounding almost <laughs> a bit like Enos. <laughs> The exact uh, midpoint between penis and anus. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Maybe that's why he is so hyper-dignified. And yeah. He <laughs> knew from a young age. Suave. It's handed down <laughs> through his family. Listen, you have uh, come into the world with a profound shortcoming, but we have devised a way. Ultimate dignity. Ultimate classy. Um, 
Yeah, so I think it's it sucks. It sucks. I don't think that it's the big, like, seismic shift that people think, or people seem to be reacting. Uh, it's a concentration like it of two pretty much irrelevant media organizations. Yeah, but there's rumblings about when this sort of falls under the Murdoch umbrella and stuff. I think it's just another mid mid move, maybe, in the march to Murdoch Town. Yeah. And if people are getting up in arms about it and getting frustrated about it, then maybe that's a good thing. Oh, look, it is a good thing. People. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it's happening now. I don't really see yeah. uh, why you would wait to, to worry mm. when you're dealing with two corpses, essentially. It's yeah. not necrophilia. Just <laughs> You're literally burying two bodies in one coffin. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I mean, it, I just, I, I get where you're coming from, and mm. I understand the concerns people have. I'm just really struggling to understand why it's now. Yeah, it's all why right, man. You're you're jaded. It's the entire conceit of our podcast. So, ooh, no, it's now Fairfax is owned by Channel Nine. Yeah. This is the hill I'm going to die on. This is the step too far. Yeah, it's maybe ridiculous. it's just a raw nerve after all the ABC palaver and eh, maybe all of that shit. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to, to hard to like gin up the energy to be upset by any one thing. So I have fully it's impossible. appreciate. It's actually it. totally impossible. Yeah, um, I think you ha- news. do. You have another headline. I or do. Is that- yep. Good. I have one more headline. One more headline for the for the ladies and gentlemen. Um, this one is this one made me laugh out loud when I read it because I was looking for Super Saturday headlines. That's what we're going to be talking about. Oh, the Super yes, Saturday by-elections. Bill Shorten's great coup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Labor had a run on Super Saturday. They won everything and now they're going to be our next government. But Galaxy Brain Take from Joe Hildebrand for news.com.au. Is Malcolm Turnbull the real winner from Super Saturday? Uh, n- no, he's not. Of course not. No, he he lost uh, definitively, but this was so full. I think I know like, where he's going, though. Yeah, you know, look, his his point isn't fucking nothing, but the way that he's couched it in my like down homey kind of fucking conventional wisdom, common sense bullshit. Yeah, isn't it uh, though, bruv? Yeah, listen, uh, it was was, was so fucking long winded. Uh, <clears throat> I hate long winded. All right, someone people. asked me a very simple question. In three paragraphs, he'll get to what the question was. It was the most obvious and critical question of the campaign, and it went straight to the heart of the whole political maelstrom that has been engulfing Australia for the past decade. It wasn't asked by a factional power broker or an electoral analyst or a media commentator or a political expert. It was asked by a laconic, mild-mannered, footy-loving suburban dad who just happens to be my brother-in-law. Then there's another paragraph, and at the end of that paragraph, uh, he asked with a slightly confused, furrowed brow, so why does Malcolm Turnbull want to win? That's the profound question of this Super Saturday thing. Oh, wait. And that, dear pun- people and pundits of Australia, is the million-dollar question, writes Hildebrand. The <laughs> and fucking that's the million-dollar answer, is that it's a million-dollar question. Yeah. Easy. Problem solved. <laughs> Next. And there's, he just goes into how crazy politics is and stuff. And anyway, his contention is that by losing Super Saturday, Malcolm Turnbull gets to face off against Bill Shorten instead of Anthony Albanese in the next election. And that's why it's a good thing that he lost everything. Uh, okay, so that wasn't where I thought it was going to go. Oh, interesting. I thought it was going to go 
down the lines of Malcolm Turnbull has got a uh, marble on his side of the table that Peter Dutton doesn't, which is that yeah. this policy direction we are going in is disastrous yeah. and unpopular and we won't win the election even against Bill fucking Shorten. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I uh, definitely, that thought crossed my mind when I was reading it, the idea that it's like it could be a factional token. Yeah, so w- w- what, what he's suggesting mm. is that he might lose the election by a little bit less than he otherwise would. Yeah. Which is not yeah, really what I would call a win. The fact that I lost... <laughs> the fact it would have been so much worse I if lost. I lost to Anthony Albanese, though. Yeah. And i got to say, I, I'm starting to kind of enjoy what Labor's doing with Bill Shorten. Yeah, I mean, he's... Which is, after the Rudd-Gillard experience, mm. they seem to be going down a more parliamentary and less presidential route, which is yep. what our system is supposed to run on, which yep. is, all right, so our leader is the most boring, unimaginative and hated man in the world doesn't matter we've still got the numbers to win yeah and this way the party won't be held hostage to ludicrous personality cult bullshit yeah look in that that sense i kind of dig where they're coming from yeah by choosing a shitty pointless leader you create Mm. a much more stable party yeah yeah i mean there's there's something to that um apologies to bill (laughs) (laughs) i don't think he he does suck so much right he's awful I would much rather have Albanese than Shorten. I would as well, yes. but... Given that they are making a fuck a couple of... Mm, this is the mildest endorsement. They're giving a couple of tiny concessions to working-class stuff. What Hildebrand, because he's a self-proclaimed centrist... Uh, of course, his surname's Bill, Hildebrand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bill, Bill Shorten... I knew nothing about Hildebrand before I read this headline. The most now centrist I've read, surname oh, ever. Yeah. So he says that Shorten has uh, devolved to the populist policies of the extreme right and left. Mm. Pause that one out. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's... It's Bill Shorten who's using the populist uh, techniques of the far right in this election. I was going to say he's not not using any techniques. (laughs) He's not. He's not a populist. He's a fucking bureaucrat through and through. Yeah, I'd say, like, well, he's a technocrat, except he doesn't have any techniques or (laughs) skills. Yeah, he is. He's a bureaucrat, isn't he? He's a full-blown bureaucrat. Yeah, yeah. Fuck me, Dad. But if it can bring some fucking stability and we get Albanese in a couple of terms, I'm happy with that. Or plebs or somebody with some fucking blood in their veins. Because it feels like that may be the way that it's going. If we had a really boring, boring, centrist government Mm. that just put down some reasonable fucking administrative procedures, cleaned the environment up a bit and started to rebuild the kind of infrastructure of democracy, you know, trust in the Mm. national broadcaster, openness about government policy and decision-making, openness about Australia's uh, concentration camp fiasco. Yeah. You know, just if we started moving in a really tedious, dull, unnewsworthy fashion in those directions, I'd Mm. say good innings labour. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, that's kind of it. I've just realised how much (laughs) that 
like I, so much I think to I, fix. I generally feel that way as well, and I've only just realised how tired I am. <laughs> right, and that's 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 why I would be like, I yeah. will settle for resetting the chessboard. Yeah, if they can yeah. achieve a chessboard yeah. reset, then that's enough for me. I'll I mean, take that. Part of it is that that's all we can hope for with this uh, election, but. Yeah, but if that, if if that happens, and and if in you know say four and a half years, mm. we're then looking at um, at throwing in a, a, a progressive figure, mm. that'd be wonderful. But a centrist is progress at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, yeah, I'm torn because like we need to ride out Dutton. We can't have the. There's a good chance Dutton will go. Yeah. Dixon, if Longman went, Dixon could go. Yeah. Um, I fucking hope so, because then that clears the board a little bit. I'm also wary of the idea that if we have a a term or two of milquetoast centrism from Labour, then the electorate will be salved to the point that we'll just have another cycle and the Libs will get in again and we won't get that progressive candidate. Like, it took... How long did it take between fucking Whitlam and Rudd? Like, three decades, right? So mm. I'm worried that maybe our wait f- between Rudd and, you know, Robo Marx might be <laughs> another three decades. <laughs> and we've only Could gone be. through... We've already gotten through one, we'll so... We'll be in our know. 60s, almost, in three. Oh, that'll be bad. Yeah. Fuck that. Anyway. That makes it sound like a long time. Um, yeah, so that's it. Super Saturday came. Labor cleaned up, except for the one independent, uh, the Xenophon. Uh, Rebecca Sharkey. Rebecca Sharkey, who held on to her um, seat. Uh, and, the, yeah, I didn't know who Joe Hildebrand was no, no, very you, recently. Now you have that pleasure. Now he's one of... I'm going to follow this dude, because he's the self-satisfied centre. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I, I just sort of examine things impartially and see where the left does things right and see where the right does things right, which basically just means that I'm guaranteed to be right half of the time. Tell you what, Malcolm Turnbull versus Bill Shorten is the most tedious political confrontation in Australia's history. It's going to suck for us because we're going to have to talk about it. It feels like it's gone forever. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be the most fucking... (laughs) tiring election of my lifetime <laughs> so far it's, it's yeah, yeah yeah by a long way that's australia's position at the moment though is just apathy and <laughs> weariness sometimes i get envious this of how country up has the fucking yanks never felt so empty yeah it feels like a fucking Potemkin village, the whole thing. It feels like we've been gone to, like, the political equivalent of that fucking road traffic safety school that's down the road where you yeah. take your bikes and you I, I almost got so. killed by a woman picking her child up from the road safety school because <laughs> she was on her mobile phone. <laughs> the fucking irony. I love it. What a dipshit. Yeah, it was But I'm also not I, w- I, I would have been, like, borderline content to get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, what a story. <laughs> what a story. What a way to get famous. Man killed by a woman texting on her way out of the road. Huge safety. traffic school. Fuck off. Um, Alright. That's it. We've, we've gotten through our 
I can never hit a harmony if I just try to do it first time. I apologize for ruining your news thing and then for talking instead and robbing you of the opportunity to rant into what you were going to say. Didn't ruin the news thing at all with my fucking tone deaf bullshit that I was doing. Oh, you weren't too bad. Well, what we're doing for our first topic today is socialism and we're going to talk about a couple of defining attributes of socialism and we're going to talk about some things that socialism definitely isn't and the reason for this is that i was essentially accused of hand waving the question of what is and isn't socialism in in an Mm. attempt to simply say that every time it didn't work it's because it wasn't actually it yeah which is not you know it's a, it's a, that's a thing that people do, and I'm glad it was pointed out to me. So we're going to throw down a couple of bits and say, if these features are discernible, then you've got a uh, socialist system underway, and mm-hmm. then you can fairly critique it. If yep. these things are not present, you do not have a socialist system. So yeah. it's unfair to thusly critique it. It's time to shit and get off the pot. That's how concrete and... Well, ideally, that's kind of how it works. Uh, you don't want to shit and stay on the pot because that's, well, that's 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 the that's, that's hemorrhoid is that the central, implication of right? the question. It's like you're sitting on the pot, you're not shitting. So shit or get off the pot. The implication being that you, if you if you shit, you're allowed to stay there, but only if you shit. Yeah, and then you can stay there indefinitely. You've earned that pot, man. Well, it's like eating cake and having it as well. What a! F- I hate that phrase because it's the wrong way around. The yeah. phrase it's have your cake and eat it too, yeah. which makes somewhat more sense than. I mean, it's it's still eat your cake and dog have shit too. phrasing. Yeah, no, it is. It's stupid. Phrase. Just be like, it's ridiculous phraseology. Yeah, but uh, eat the whole cake and still have it for tomorrow. That's how <laughs> I would put it. That's five <laughs> seconds of thinking. Ancient fucking in scare quotation writers of proverbs and wisdom pearls. Socialism. What is it, Darcy? Well, essentially, it's a system of production and distribution that gives the workers responsible for distributing and producing goods and services mm-hmm. the responsibility for distributing and producing goods and services. Sure. It effectively democratises industry and it democratises commerce and makes the whole system revolve more around human needs and uh, social needs than profit-seeking. Yeah. Uh, Can I append to that that part of that is obviously a robust social safety net? Yes. And sort of nationalised... Or... I would say not nationalised. How do you say about utilities and stuff? I would say, ideally, utilities would be run as consumer cooperatives Mm -hmm. with unionised staff... Sure. Or, or, or you'd f- have to find a way of making a cooperative that was a consumer workers co-op. Yeah. I'd prefer them not to be nationalised because nationalisation... Mm, it's a tricky one. It depends on the utility as well. Often with nationalised industries, what happened in the 20th century mm-hmm. was they were run kind of like private industries, but badly. Because yeah. there was less accountability and less consequence for error. Sure. Uh, then you got in the private sector. So, ideally, you'd have a, a, a cooperative still. Co-ops are always the goal mm. with socialism. 
Um, but I would like for, to go for, on the record for some to things it. like the health service. Yeah, that makes sense. Like a nationalized hospital industry. Yep. But yeah. when you're talking about, say, uh, a national bank or yeah. rail service or mm. electricity distribution, mm. and then a consumer's cooperative can make sense as well. I'm willing to believe that. I, I would like to go on record so that when our listeners pull Darcy up on something else, I'm not implicated also. Uh, <laughs> although Darcy probably agrees with me on this one. Better a nationalised uh, service than our current privatised services because the current system of privatisation that we have typically is monopoly. If we're and talking about utilities, yes, yeah. 100%. Yes. It's better to um, have nationalised utilities than privately owned utilities. But better still... But it's better still to have worker-owned... Consu- worker, worker and consumer-owned cooperatives, yeah. Sure. All right, I'll buy that. So, um, are those our minimum criteria? How lean do you want to keep this? Well, Everything co-ops, good, essentially, sa- good safety net, or...? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Mm. Es- essentially, but it's also um, not an end, socialism. It's... A means, yes. So there will be different stages along the, uh, the sort of timeline, as it great were. Great red triumph. <laughs> well, you know, certainly something to do while we wait for the sun to explode. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are various stages along the sort of pathway. So you, mm-hmm. you've got, I think, the the radical example of socialism in action would be versus statism and hierarchalism would be the Spanish Civil War, where socialism did and didn't work. It did work in the sense that while the Spanish Republic was, uh, we'll say, you know, the Catalonian region, for example, while while that was independent and in effect, Mm. you had very good standards of living, you had excellent uh, provision of services, you had much better economic development than under the the, uh, Spanish uh, monarchy. Yeah. And you had very good uh, equality of outcome and opportunity. Mm. And uh, that, that applied across genders as well. Yep. Uh, George Orwell's homage to Catalonia is a very frustrating picture of a, of a world that was lost. Yeah. Um, in that context, though, it's also fair to say socialism didn't work because the Spanish fascists won the Civil War <laughs> and doomed the country to 40 years of hell. Yeah. Um, they, they, they had much better funding and backing because yeah. like, all of the world was helping them win. Yep. Whereas the <laughs> Spanish um, anarcho-syndicalists only got very, very suspect assistance from the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, Stalin didn't really want them to win because he, he didn't want people to get too panicky about the Red Menace before he was ready to deal with it. Yeah. Um, good old Uncle Joe. Good old Joe, yeah. The thinking ma- the people first, right? Who pretty much comprehensively destroyed left-wing politics for <laughs> about a century. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Joe. You massive cunt. Yeah. Um, that leads us very nicely, though, into... what? Are, yeah, other instances, sorry, in which socialism is mm. very effective. It is in the modern day, if we look at cooperatives... Yeah. that exist in the world. They are extremely competitive with traditional hierarchical firms yep. and, and uh, wealth-extracting firms, and uh, in some cases can be more effective and more resilient. Mm. Um, on average, they came out of the financial crisis in much better shape. Yep. And, you know, uh, institutions like the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, I suppose, is maybe the most famous in the world. But in Australia, we even we 
um, liberals that we are have a cooperative uh, industry that's in actually surprisingly decent shape. Really, um, you you can buy a cheese from Coles made by a uh, dairy co-op in New South Wales, mm. which is probably their best affordable Australian tasty. Yeah, Norco. Norco. There you go. For Northern Cooperative, presumably. Yeah, presumably. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what it is. Mm. It has to be democratic. I can't stress that enough. If, yeah. if your system is not democratic then it's, by definition, not socialist because the workers must have a voice in, in, yeah. in how things are being arranged and managed, yeah. as must the consumers yes. in, uh, in the sense of utilities, consumption, and so forth. So mm. without democracy, you really can't have socialism. Here's the first roadblock road that I would like to throw up Go. Uh, to deepen our understanding of this glorious utopia. Um, regulation... How while I definitely trust co-ops to be more uh, ethical in their practices than uh, yeah, because they they're stakeholders in their communities. Yeah, capitalist firms. Nevertheless, still how do we humans. how do we ensure that uh, they don't suffer maybe a smaller, uh, milder version, but still the same vagaries of uh, capitalist companies under deregulation, which is to say putting cancerous chemicals into baby formula or selling right. little so, turtle keychains? It's a good question. Um, the regulatory regime, de- I mean, it depends on what stage you're at with, with your project, mm-hmm. uh, which five-year plan we're looking at. But <laughs> yeah, uh, good. assuming that you've still got currency yeah. as your main kind of uh, bartering chip, yes. then you would need to have a similar regulatory regime to what the more successful modern capitalist economies use. Mm. Um, you would need to have disinterested arbitration authorities who review things for quality, for reliability, mm. and in a socialist context, you would have to also include reviews for social impacts. Yeah. Um, would be a very important factor as well. But the form that that sort of regulation can take, we're wanting big government in a sense, yeah, but a much more dispersed authority than what we think of now when we think of large centralised governments. Mm-hmm. We're thinking of more strong local governments. You're wanting the community to be as responsible as possible for coming up with the regulations. Yeah. You really want to minimise centralisation because the moment... You have centralization. Mm. Your socialist project is going to come under enormous pressure from the interests of the, as it were, bureaucracy or party. Mm. And that is very much a factor that killed the Soviets and turned Russia into just a despotism, essentially. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's interesting because it is one of those things where... Regulation, I think, is one of the very important things. Like, the importance of that cannot be stressed enough because humans are terrible creatures, terrible, monstrous creatures that will do 
incalculable harm to each other given half a fucking chance. So anything that veers to the, like... Uh, well, thoughtless. I think the, the problem is thoughtlessness, isn't it? It's, it's not actively evil. It's just well, I mean, some, sometimes it is. Sometimes, sometimes it's actively it's... like the Koch brothers. Yeah. But a lot, a lot of just spontaneous individual human behaviour is just thoughtless. It's not like yeah, people yeah. are cackling with glee at the... Contemplate the oh, horrors sure. they'll unleash. Yeah, 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 sure. We'll be, we'll be... Uh, charitable, they're idiots. Then, <laughs> exactly. which is which is fine. But yeah, so the impact that regulation has on attenuating that misery, I think, is like one of the most important things. However, one of the big flaws, as you say, of these projects in the past is their tendency to create uh, power positions which are immediately filled by yeah. And and this was that a criticism of Marx's thing. and Marx and Engels' mm. theory of socialism and communism that was immediately um, unleashed, yeah. right? By by people who already had um, sort of pre-Marxist socialist views mm. was all right. This dictatorship of the proletariat business mm. over whom is the proletariat to govern if it's going to be forming a, a dictatorship? Yeah. Once Tony Cliff, who's a wonderful renegade Marxist thinker, put it really succinctly. He said, you have a situation where the Soviet Union is taken over by Mm. a central totalitarian government who have immediately, because we've got this, you know, socialism in one country disaster, because it wasn't a spontaneous international revolution, Mm. they've got uh, to exist in a global capitalist environment and they've got to compete with vast capitalist empires that want to throttle them. Yeah. So the Soviet Union ends up running exactly the same way as these uh, capitalist competitors in that it is reliant upon extracting value from alienated workers. Yeah. This is a big, big problem. Uh, it's pretty much exactly the situation that socialism intends to subvert. Mm. And so the fact that the USSR is reliant on it in, in Cliff's view, and the view of a lot of uh, critics of, of the Marxist communist system, is you essentially have a communism-themed corporation. Yeah. With bureaucrats instead of, you know, managers and directors. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's functioning as a capitalist firm. Yeah. The, the Marxist response to that was, well, it's not a capitalist firm because there's no buying and selling of assets. Which is very pedantic and nerdile. We're going to sort of move away from it, lest we risk alienating the viewer as the, <laughs> the USSR alienated the worker. But essentially, the Marxist response was, "Well, okay, so this is state capitalism, not yeah. pure capitalism, sure. and that's fundamentally very important." Uh, the critics of the system, like say me, would say it's a, it's a distinction without a difference. You're trying to. Split mm. hairs over terminology. Yeah. Um, functionally, what you got with the USSR and the People's Republic of China, I think probably still the case in the PRC, is Absolutely. everything that made capitalism awful and gave birth to the rise of socialist thought with none of the things that made capitalism successful and worthwhile, like the efficiency of production relative to previous models, yeah. like the freedom of movement that people came to enjoy. And, mm. uh, and the sort of gradual liberalisation of society. 
these things were wonderful. And <laughs> what you got with the USSR was like, well, we're going to strip all that shit out, all the stuff that makes capitalism justifiable. We'll take that away yeah. and just have alienated workers. Mm. It's going to be great. It was a disaster. And yeah. so when people say, oh, well, you know, the socialism doesn't work, the Soviet Union was a, was a, was a mess, mm. it is a kind of surreal criticism to me. Well, yeah, it's... I mean, because it's it's a bit like saying you know, cars are an appalling form of transportation. I mean, you know, just look at the the, the MetroLink rail service. You, yeah, it doesn't I mean, make any sense. Yeah, your judgment of <laughs> of that argument depends fairly directly on your judgment of the mental clarity of the person making it. So, at the very best, you can say that they're being extremely disingenuous, and at worst, you can say that they're just. Yeah, you can say that they're just lying. Certainly. You get a lot of people Mm. who say, oh, but they use the word socialist. We've addressed this already with the Democratic um, People's Republic of North Korea. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Um, Yeah, this is a... What you say about, like, cooperatives is interesting to me because it suggests to me a way in which this kind of spontaneous shift maybe the only way that it can be done comparatively peacefully could happen is just an increase in the presence of co-ops. But Well, it has one- to happen peacefully to succeed, I feel. I'm not a revolutionary, unless I'm really drunk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit revolutionary. I'm fine with it. Uh, I read an interesting thing that suggested that the success of a revolution with regards to civil liberties and... Uh, human rights is kind of directly related to the amount of exposure that that country has had to democratic governments in the past. So uh, Russia and China and stuff had... There was no mm, successful democratic culture. Yeah, and so which they... Which meant the revolution inevitably became a horror show. tyrannical, whereas countries where it has been have, more democratic generally have a, a smoother transition. The example even there's the US, right? Breaking away from the British and set, yeah. setting itself up as an independent yeah. State. However, which was a relatively successful revolution, I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah. Done all right out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm circling around my point, which is that the transition from the strength of capitalism mm. presents, like, this major sticking point that I haven't been able to think of a good way past that isn't just revolutionary, which I'm, you know, that could be fucking disastrous, obviously. However, uh, when you have the strength of an unfettered system versus a uh, the weakness of a system which has to take into account people's happiness and mm. the strength of social fabric, there's this real risk that people think of the only path to success being out-competing capitalism and therefore capitalism absorbing, like... Capitalism absorbs everything. It's the most efficient fucking predator in the world. Yeah, this is a good point. So, um, I mean, cooperatives do, so far, cooperative mm. firms that succeed, Yeah, I suppose by definition, um, are comparably productive yeah. to traditional capital firms that mm. succeed. Um, but, yeah, it would be foolish to say that, that uh, socialism has to be as productive as capitalism, because that's sort of not... The, that's, well, it's not sort of... That's not the point. Yeah, yeah, The yeah. point is that it has to be sufficiently productive to meet 
you know, human requirements. Yeah. Anything more than that, surplus can be put to use. It can also be misappropriated. Mm. It's strictly relevant, you know. Yeah. Um, that assumes that there's a limited time frame with a specific goal that we have to get to. Yeah. Which is a very human way of thinking, but it's does no indication that that's how the universe is remotely well it's the apocalypse baby (laughs) we're running out of time that's why everybody's jazzed up about socialism now yeah yeah well you can be fatalistic about it but that's but but if if you rush it and ruin it it's far worse than than um this is true going about it in a a proper fashion and not finishing it this is true i'm not necessarily concerned about the time scale of it what i am concerned about is this dark kind of uh, part of the vision, which I can't see clearly, which is how we negotiate the transfer of power from how we actually unseat the people who have tremendous power, how we make that transition smoothly, and how we dismantle gigantic, uh, extremely powerful international corporations. Well, in, 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 in one sense, that there's an organic process to that. Mm. which is why you're seeing a split in politics at the moment as globalisation um, 10 years ago was the only model in town that anybody mm. thought could work. There's now been a split in capital between reactionary capital and liberal capital. Mm. Reactionary capital, you have the Brexiteers and uh, for liberal capital, you have the Clintons. Yeah. Right? So they're, they're, they're both essentially part of the same capitalist machine. The question is whether or not they believe in the sanctity of borders. And there's a reason why reactionary capital has arisen and is demanding Mm. borders be reinstated. And that is that once international borders are sufficiently weak and international corporations are sufficiently strong and they've built up a large international proletariat, Mm. then you can start to have an international working class communicating with itself and reacting mm. in, a, in, a, in a concerted fashion. And against an international unified working class, the um, wealthiest corporation in the world would be completely powerless because it would eliminate their only whip that they yeah. have, which is the capacity to close their plant and move it somewhere else. I mean, that's true. It could just be through... So the reason Labor we have right? yeah. exercising what's absolutely the, what's the word it I'm could be sort of international what would be like the, the 77th fucking international or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they don't tend to last long. Yeah. But the reason they don't last long is because we have these strong national borders. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I was very sad to see Brexit take place and one of the reasons why I'm confused um, that Corbyn is so pro well, he's, he's anti-Europe. I understand why he's anti-Europe, because it's a capitalist institution, largely, and he's not a capitalist. But there seems to be this bit that people have forgotten, which is that in order for socialism to succeed, like capitalism, they both require the same openness of borders, the same freedom of movement. Yeah, yeah. That is a good point. National frontiers mm. kill all liberal projects... If you see socialism as an extension of liberalism, which you can, extending liberalism in a way to all of society, not just the wealthy. Yeah. Um, But liberal in the sense of of, uh, freedom and and, and dignity Mm. and and reason and science, all of these things you have to have open borders and free movement of people for. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, internationalism is dope. I'm on board with it. I'm on board with it as well, and I yeah. and I'm so I'm, I'm very upset that reactionary capital is having the effect it's having in America, in Britain, yeah. and that will spread. Unfortunately, America is America's diseases very yeah. infectious. Yeah, reactionary capital is rearing its head and, in Australia. Well. Yeah, and here as well, we've got a fucking crazy strong border protection movement in society and it's interesting because in a way they're kind of trying to eat their cake and still have it for tomorrow because they benefit from the economic (laughs) strength that's brought by our immigrant friends and the the sort of shared prosperity that can arise from being kind of open and not isolated well and it's led to a crisis in the government because we have scott morrison saying you can't do this it's going to cut 500 million dollars out of our budget yeah and Peter Dutton saying, yeah, but I don't give a shit about, I yeah. don't do mathematics. I have no interest in budget. Yeah. I am Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. Mis- and I have got camps. I have got camps. Yeah. I'm not giving up my camps. Mm. It is every fascist's dream <laughs> yeah. to have yeah. got, I have got pens with humans in that I can do whatever I want. We've yeah. got a media blackout. Yeah. I don't care about your fucking budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Iron Man, I'm playing more on like God mode, more like Mister Tin Pot. Am I right? Uh, there's two tiny little points that I I want to make before we go on. One, fuck, I've forgotten. So let's not go into that one. Um, Very good. Oh no, one is the part of the difficulty of this is just that the problems that capital has have has wrought on mm. this fucking planet are so present and, and salient that this worries me as a potential other sticking point for a kind of nice gradual transfer of power is this I think is why people are anxious not because they're eager to have it done now because they want it now but mm. because they're eager to not they want be to act before the clean shackles. up is, in, is, is impossible yeah well that's just you know, it's gotten that. too much. People are dying because of it, and and oh, I'm not saying that the timeline isn't somewhat urgent, and that people should you know loaf about complacently. Yeah. but I, I, I'm simply suggesting that people need to fret less about the productive rivalry between socialism and capitalism. Yeah, sure, to maybe say that's a red herring. It doesn't yeah. matter. If well, it's I mean, may- maybe if I'm playing Darcy's advocate here, uh, we can accept a government that will simply just roll back some of the worst while the economic uh, triumph of cooperatives is carefully and quietly toiling away in the background or being achieved in the background. Anyway, maybe this is, however, the divergent point and when we're yelling at each other, screaming at each other in five years, it'll be over there. So I'll <laughs> be revolution now. The and you'll <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Which of us will have the other killed first is the question. It'll be me to you because I want the revolution. Um, the second thing is like, yeah, I personally come at it from a, uh, from the fuzzy side than the uh, an inspector calls side of socialism, which is just like, I want my fucking safety nets. I want my... Uh, so maybe that can be our bifurcation. I'll take care of the fuzzy, non-economic, heart, anger love side of it and you can take care of the sensible economic side of it and we could be the world's first you can be Gandhi I'll be Nehru (laughs) what a fucking flattering comparison there yeah I don't want to be Gandhi dudes 
social capital is at an all-time low. Well, I don't want to compare myself to Nehru because he mm. was really bright and brave. But, oh, um, there you, go. you know, it's, it's a comparison. They never <laughs> stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, other than that, though, I'm pretty content with that that uh, working definition, the proliferation of cooperative, essentially democratic... Look, it's Workers it's control the means of production. The I, means I, of production. Yeah, it's 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 hard to. I'm, 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 so I was trying to con- like think of various setups that you could have. Like, well, this is socialism. That's not socialism. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, if the workers don't control the means of production, and if society doesn't control the utilities that serve it, yeah, then you can't have. You have to have democracy for that to be a reality. And yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm for it. I'm for it. Co-ops now, it's a much more sensible way to run things. If yeah. you think too much about the uh, structure of capitalist firms, it becomes... Well, the beautiful thing about a co-op is the more efficient a co-op gets, all it, all it means is people do less work, but it doesn't mean they suffer mm. less wage. Yeah. Right? So, you know, in, in, if, if we like, oh, good, efficiency has been doubled. Instead of laying off half the workers, we just say mm. everyone gets half the hours, but you've yeah. still got the same pay. Isn't that a great idea? That sounds like treason that to me. That could actually build a really strong economy. What because you'd have people wasteful, with money and free time. Wasteful treatment. Two things you need to be a consumer. Productivity. <laughs> God, I can't believe I'm hearing such shit. In a perfect segue to my micro topic. Yay! To because this is definitely related. All right, I like so a good segue. A lot. We're getting very good at segues. Uh, well, apart from when we, we do convinced, those segments where we trail off sometimes. But yeah, I think we've had a couple of those this week, but that's all right. all right. So I want to talk about the concept of productivity and approach it from a non or not strictly economic point of view and take maybe more of an ethical or philosophical consideration of things. Because I saw from August of last year, there was this article entitled, Total Solar Eclipse Could Cost US Nearly $700 Million in Lost Productivity. And this is the shit that fucking crawls right up my ass. (laughs) Uh, The idea that something has to be productive and economically productive... Uh, to like productivity is the thing, the yeah. single uh, metric by which all things in society must be judged. And it put me immediately in mind uh, of what's happening with Campbell Arcade uh, under Flinders Street, where the Sticky Institute, which is, for the listener is a little shop that sells zines. So people make their zines, they bring them in, the shop will sell them for you. So you can go in there and like, rifle through all of these, like, really cool little handmade uh, publications and the people who make them get a little bit of pocket money, the people who run the shop get just enough to keep going. This only succeeds because of a, like, rent control agreement that they had with the property owner from way back. or whatever. Mm. They don't make enough money to justify their own uh, continued existence, so they're knocking down the Campbell Arcade to do... A new metro tunnel for the new fucking metro project, the trains. Uh, and Sticky is gone, basically, because now, in the the breaking of that agreement, people can say, well, it doesn't pay for itself. It doesn't uh, yeah. produce enough. And this this is one of the vexatious things about capitalism. 
These concerns mm. make sense in a world which will collapse if you do not get a profitable return on your investment. Yeah, but we're 100% fucking not living in that world. The US can afford to lose $700 million in lost product- productivity. Yeah, but the stakeholders, a- yeah. in the, the share, rather the shareholders, mm. cannot. Apparently not. Um, and essentially, I think it's like a key marker of a civilization being in decline when it stops caring about itself in any philosophical or aesthetic or cultural terms and starts to think of itself purely as productive, as machinic, uh, if that makes sense. And I think this is the same thing that's happened with the Gatwick, right? It's like... Yeah. To from a slightly different angle, it's not necessarily about productivity, but it's about how can we take this thing that doesn't fit into this like central meta narrative of what life is in our society and how can we change it so that now it's not a sketchy place for fake people, these weird like monsters that mutate out of actual humans. Now it's a series of shiny apartments where real people can live and then they can go and work at a fucking anonymous gigantic building where they do anonymous paperwork the fact that capitalism uh by the way more closely resembles the classical interpretation of like communist bureaucracy than ever is the irony of that should not be lost on anybody kafka's self-perpetuating pointless bureaucracy (laughs) yeah yeah uh so like that that's my pitch to you uh listener Let's talk about productivity and how harmful it is as a concept, because I honestly think that this, I'm going to use the word again, meta-narrative, which is like a postmodern concept of uh, the unseen narrative which guides how we structure ourselves as society, uh, that is more fucking pernicious and dangerous than religion, I think. Well, it somewhat is a religion. It is. Oh, it fills the well, same it's a, it's, it's, function. It's, yeah, it's a, certainly it's in the sense it's a dangerous and ill-founded metaphysical view. Mm. You're essentially viewing society as a means for investors to derive profit mm. from their investments, and that's it. Yeah. And in that in that sense, this alarm about a lunar eclipse being watched by people. Yeah. Makes sense. It makes yeah. cretinous sense, but it makes sense. If you believe that the human experience is literally to generate profits for mm. speculators and investors, then it's, this all follows. But if you do not accept that premise, yeah, none of it makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. But I think it's why it's important when we're defining socialism in economic terms and when we're saying that, you know... It, what you're speaking, what you were speaking about with uh, increased productivity means that people get more free time. That's yeah. that's good. That's an ideal thing. But whenever we're as good little socialists, boys and girls, whenever we're constructing our arguments and we are coming up with economic models for how society is supposed to work, I think, and I might be uh, going at odds again with the dialectical materialists, but. I think it's important to have that little kernel 
of your argument, which is also just, you don't have to fucking live this way, and it doesn't have to be couched in these terms. Mm. And maybe the government can subsidise the arts, because the arts are fucking good for people's souls. Don't use the word soul, you'll get laughed at, because people can't understand uh, the subtleties of languages. It's good for mental health, it's good for happiness levels, it's no coincidence that the countries with stronger support for the arts tend to be doing better in just being human metrics, the idea of animal happiness as opposed to human productivity. I think it's I think that it's really important to keep that space carved out so that you don't get fucking carved out as an inefficient part of the system. Mm. And it's when you see you'll see it everywhere, not just in these like extreme examples but when they talk about efficiencies in finding efficiencies in the abc which means firing people yeah or reducing content or yeah. both yeah they will the capitalists the scary capitalists will frame <laughs> the world they're extremely good at meta narrative this is the frustrating thing about postmodernism is that uh the capitalists understood the lesson extremely well and took all of the information and understood that you could manufacture your own truth and that you could manipulate people into believing that truth and now Donald Trump is president. But with the same gesture, they also wisely discredited these ideas among the and he left still and has progressives and stuff. Like a third of the country? Yeah, way, way, uh, way higher than they should be. But it's because of uh, because of this uh, gesture of like manipulating meta narrative. And don't be skeptical of that. I guess a lot of leftists are skeptical of these kind of like very soft, airy terms that come out of academia. Yeah, this is true. It's advertising, and it's fucking truth manipulation. Um, Leftists have traditionally resented the fact that they have to communicate with the people they view themselves as the champions of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's often struck me as a delightful irony within this movement that you know yeah. <clears throat> means so much to me that mm. <laughs> we are the party of the people, but we will not speak a language understanded of the people. Yeah, you know, like the. Well, it is. It's like the Plantagenet family in, insisting on speaking Norman French, isn't it? Mm. And refusing to learn English. Yeah. Um, and, and still insisting that they were the that they were going to be good and efficient administrators of an English speaking mm. kingdom. Yeah, it's rather funny. Mm. Yeah, you have to be able to communicate, and you have to understand what communication means, and that there's an emotional quantity to communication. Yeah. It's not just about uh, dissemination of meaning. Well, it's almost not even about... Like, the surface level of shit is basically only ever, like, a fifth of what you're getting of any message. There's also the subtext, and then there's the crucial bit of, like, analysing how you are reacting to, like, reading yourself, reading something, uh, which is what, like white nationalists, for example, are incapable of doing because they don't understand that their emotional uh, <laughs> response isn't purely coming from God. It's coming from <laughs> words being fed into their brain boxes. 
and then uh. words coming out like, God damn it. Um, it, was, if it was as simple as just clearly expressing facts and figures, mm. then there'd be no such thing as conservatism or reactionary thinking. There'd yeah. be no such thing as racism or sexism. Yeah. But it's obviously not mm. how our brains are structured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think Do you think the left will learn this lesson at some point? Um, I'm not sure. People are talking about it in different terms, the idea that we have to take lessons from the right and how they uh, go about fucking campaigning and how they go about messaging and, and all of that and how part of it is, like, the, the centrist liberal view of the world is always has always like seen itself to be outside of this stuff. This is the Francis Fukuyama end of history horse shit. Yeah. And it's the idea that we can step outside of ideology. Well, ideology. We're post ideology. And what we have is a series of impressive numbers, which tick over, which require minor corrections and then fix people's lives. But human, human civilization has always and exclusively almost run on fucking mythology and the right understands this in a way that the left doesn't at the moment. And the, to the extent that the left understand it's, understands it, it's like resurrecting Soviet imagery from the fucking yeah. uh, mid of, so middle of the 20th century, which we've, which we've talked about. We need... And I think that, yeah, we're getting the lesson now. America's doing it very well, <laughs> and Britain is doing it well as well, so... Why are you suspicious of my constant references to tyranny? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly like, don't use exactly the same imagery that your enemies use to propagandize <laughs> against you as well. Right. Fucking come Legions on, Legions of faceless soldiers marching yeah. along. I get it as a fun, like, trolling behavior to do on Twitter or whatever. I get that. But, uh, Yes. That was a, a, a curvy little snake of a rant, but my point is just don't fucking let the mythology of exclusively economic productivity drive the way that you think or talk about your ideal society. Have that little space to be like, we can be fucking human, for God's sake. We can have a yeah. zane shop. We Never let your a- enemies dictate the terms of the conversation that you're having. Yeah. And... Um- yeah, never underestimate the the appeal of emotion. Mm. And don't be afraid to call somebody a fucking monster as well in an argument. This has worked for me more times. I know this goes against maybe common sense. Do you have to do it in an affectionate way? That's the trick. You have to switch the terms and just be like, "Why would you be upset that a small amount of money is going to supporting an institution that makes people happy or whatever? Like, why is that a sticking point for you?" And make it about their passing yeah. of the. Oh, this is a good point, actually. If you're wanting to win an argument with somebody, mm. um, making them like you is—I uh, know a lot of people on the left will be very surprised to learn this. Yeah. But if you if you can charm people, they will listen yeah. to what you have to say. That's true. <laughs> Arguments is like, arguments is, <laughs> arguments is primarily good grammar. Uh, arguments are like one eighth fact. Yeah, and, that and like seven eighths. Yeah, Man, look charisma. At Brexit. There was not a single fact in the Leave campaign side. Yeah, and there've been no consequences for them once that was for the public. Which are like, oh yeah, no, they lied about everything. Yeah. Absolutely everything. They either lied or they were wrong. Yeah. There's not been a scintilla of negative backlash. Yeah. Yeah. Look at how 
Bush has been rehabilitated and the British press are now going to Blair for comment. And it's like, he's a war criminal. (laughs) Don't listen to fucking Blair. Right. You know that he manufactured that intelligence. Christ. Yeah. But he represents the heyday of so many journalistic careers. They Mm. can't help but go back to him. Yeah. Fondly. Yeah. That said, if somebody in an argument is not going to uh, like you, then also feel free to get a cathartic fight out. No, totally. But just saying, you know, uh, treating people humanely is a surprisingly effective way of getting them to listen. I know, listener. Isn't he such a disgusting moderate? Anyway, that's about all we've got time for. Uh, Yeah, well, since I've now been so uh, appallingly slurred, I, I should add, of course... Tear the fascists down. Yeah. Tear the fascists down. You heard it here first. Darcy Moran, Australia's leading revolutionary. Destroy capital. Seize the means of production. A brighter future for you. Onward. Touch it, my best of luck next time.